are back for another episode of The Spirit of Haggard. So we're excited today to be talking about one of the most important aspects of equine veterinary medicine in central Kentucky. And of course, that means we're going to talk about mares and foals. So I am excited to introduce our guest this morning, Dr. Karen Von Dolan. Dr. Von Dolan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited that you're here. And obviously, this is a topic near and dear to your heart. So we want to learn a little bit about your journey, uh, how you ended up at Haggard, and where you earned the title Theriogenologist. And we'll define some of those things for our listeners here today. And then we'll really get into give them a peek behind the curtain, right, on Repro and Therio in Central Kentucky and what you do each and every day. So we'll start with you. I tried to, I always call it stalking, right? So I try to find out a little bit more about our guests than I may already know. And so it looks like for you, you've had a bit of a West Coast to East Coast journey in your schooling and education. Yes, that's very correct. Okay, so so give us a little bit of background. Yep. So I uh, grew up in California um, and my grandpa had a cattle ranch. So that was kind of my earliest exposure to a love of animals and an interest in veterinary medicine. I was kind of the classic, always knew I wanted to go to vet school. Um, And so uh, shadowed as many vets as I could growing up and um, had my own animals, never had my own horse. So I'm not the classic equine vet that um, grew up riding horses and showing horses competitively. I rode a little bit on a recreational basis, but never anything serious. Um, and then I went to undergrad in Pennsylvania at a small liberal arts college, got a degree in chemistry and um, then studied you know, a broad-based liberal arts. And then always knew I wanted to go back to California for um, vet school. Davis was always my dream. So then I went to vet school at UC Davis. Um, and while I was in vet school, I had no plans whatsoever to become a specialist. I didn't think I was like the type of student that would end up doing a residency. And I always envisioned myself doing um, general practice and uh, all large animals, not just horses, um, kind of a James Harriet style, do everything. Yes. Yep, that was that was the plan. Um, and while I was in vet school, um, um, kind of my friend group was more the equine track. And then uh, I came to OEPS as a third year, which okay. was fantastic. And that was, you know, we got to come to Central Kentucky. It was hosted by Haggard and Rudin Riddle. Um, you got to meet and greet with a lot of different practices about internship opportunities. We toured Haggard and Rudin Riddle. And I one of my takeaways from Haggard was how cool the muck system was in medicine. That's okay. one of the things <laughs> I remember um, yes. that stood out to me. And then just seeing all the ambulatory vets zooming in and out and thinking like, oh my gosh, like I could never, like I would never be good enough to work here. Like I, like that's just too cool. I'm glad I get to see it once, but I'm never going to get to see it again. Um, And uh, toured Claiborne Farm um, and got to go to Keeneland. And again, I thought that was kind of the closure of my central Kentucky. Like that was cool. And now it's time to do something more realistic because that's not in the cards. I never thought 
to apply to be an intern at a central Kentucky practice. I didn't think I would be a competitive applicant. Um, I was worried that, you know, people that worked here had to be, you know, just would never be that caliber to even be considered. Like it was just a different level. Then in my fourth year of vet school, my very last clinical rotation was uh, theorygenology. And the resident at the time was just fantastic, um, Camilla Scott. She currently practices in, in the UK. And she was just such a kind um, and generous mentor um, and absolutely no pretense or condescension, just loved repro, loved teaching repro. And uh, I was helping her with her research project during my last clinical rotation, just holding mares for her to do biopsies. Um, she was doing a project on the endometrial concentrations of septiofur after systemic administration. And we were chit-chatting about what I was going to do after graduation. And I had a rotating internship lined up at a practice in Southern California, Alamo Pintado. And I was so excited about that. Um, but it didn't have a large repro component. And I knew that. She and I were just talking about, oh, you know, what are you going to do? And, oh, I'm going to be at Alamo. And I'm really looking forward to it. And, um, and she said, well, what are you going to do after? And I said, oh, you know, just, you know, do general practice and just, uh, you know, maybe more horses than other large animals, but still do large animal. Um, and she said, well, do you ever think about doing a residency? I was like, no, not really. Like, I don't know if I have the, if I have the you know, drive for that. Uh, I'm worried I would, you know, not, not be at that level. Um, so, uh, you know, I haven't really thought about a residency, no. And she said, well, if you did one, what would you do it in? And I said, oh, well, you know, I like, uh, I like medicine a lot. It's really interesting. And, uh, I also really like anesthesia. And she said, well, what about repro? And I was like, yeah, this is, you know, I really like repro. This has been cool these last couple of weeks. She was like, I think you should do repro. And I was like, okay, that sounds great. Um, <laughs> what, what do I do to do that? And she said, well, first of all, you really need to get a lot of experience and just, Go some go to a practice somewhere where you can just see a ton of repro and decide at that point if it's something you want to do as a specialist and you know pursue the residency residency route and become a specialist, or if you just really like repro and want to do a lot, a heavy repro caseload in general practice. And so she suggested that Australia would be a great place to get that oh, wow. high volume exposure. And so she gave me the name of a couple of big practices in Australia, and I cold emailed them after I started my internship in California and just explained, you know, I'm currently in a rotating internship. I'm really interested in some more repro exposure. What opportunities do you have? And I had the great fortune um, of being able to do a seasonal internship at Goulburn Valley in um, Australia. And uh, they have a really heavy re re repro caseload, um, a, a lot of embryo transfer recipient mares, a lot of thoroughbred stud work. And while I was down there, I was part of a six-member six seasonal intern team and just had the time of my life. It was fantastic. Um, got to do so much repro. Um, the people down, in, down under are just so warm and wonderful. I'm still really good friends with a lot of people um, that I met there. It was a very close-knit, hardworking internship team and uh, saw, lived and breathed repro 24-7 what time of year were you in Australia? Yeah, I was there during their breeding season. So I left in the middle of or early August and then came back 
to California in the middle of February. Okay. So I was just down there for a season. But during that time, after getting to see that volume, I the decision, like I, I knew, like, yes, this is what I would want to do. And I definitely want to do a residency. And um, so I was a little bit late to the um, application and planning game. You know, like a lot of my contemporaries would have already been visiting um, programs to... Um, make a decision about where they wanted to do their residencies. They'd been planning to do a repro residency maybe all the way since vet school. And so I was a little bit late to the game. Um, and you, you mentioned that you wanted to kind of hear about, you know, where your path de- deviated or where you didn't, things didn't turn out the way you would have <laughs> wanted them to. And um, I uh, had my heart set on a single residency program and um, I, I thought I was going to end up there. Uh, it's all I wanted to do. And then I was rejected um, on my first round of applications and um, I was pretty crushed, but I made a plan that, okay, I'm going to go back um, to the Northern Hemisphere, work another season, and then reapply to residencies um, once I've had a chance to think through an application strategy. And one of my big um, holes in my application was a lack of research experience. So try to um, work on some projects, um, get my name on some publications, and then be a stronger resident applicant. So then when I came back to California, um, I rejoined my intern team um, at Alamo Pintado in California. Two of my intern mates had stayed on, one as a, an associate and one as a continuing uh, fellow. And so two of my really good friends from my uh, first intern team were still at the practice. And they were at the time having more difficulty getting visas for um, international um, interns who would start be able to start when vet schools graduated overseas in January. And so there was kind of this perfect window where I could provide this little dovetail gap between um, the their international interns who had to leave because their visas were expiring in March um, and before um, new grads could start in the summer. Yeah. So then I was able to do another season um, at Alamo, got, another, got some more great um, you know, full experience, uh, surgery experience, just doing the rotating intern life um, and loved that. And then during that time, um, kind of like how um, the resident at Davis, Camilla Scott, you know, made made these suggestions and networking connections for me to go to my next step. Um, really good mentors from my internship programs were also able to um, keep their finger on the pulse of the programs that had um, last minute openings for residencies. Then I heard about an opening at North Carolina um, and, and again, that was just good people, kind people looking out for me and making connections, um, and saying, Hey, you should apply here. And Hey, you should consider this person. Um, so I applied for North Carolina's, um, AKC funded comparative theory genealogy residency. They got a grant, uh, grant funding for this, um, new position that was, uh, jointly funded by the AKC the Canaan Health Foundation and the Theory of Genealogy Foundation to fund a residency program. And the goal of that program is to train more veterinarians to be able to um, offer uh, canine reproductive services. And this program specifically was a comparative program, so you would train in both dogs and horses. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I had zero dog experience. You know, I grew right. up, I had a beloved Corgi growing up. Um, I we had also had a golden retriever when I was a little kid. And so I loved dogs, but knew nothing about dog repro except 
spay them. And that was essentially <laughs> dog repro for me. Um, and so that was a completely new experience. I was grateful enough to be uh, start that program uh, in summer of 2016. There was a um, two faculty, a PhD student, and two residents. And our caseload was, uh, when I started, was about 60% equine and 40% canine. Mm-hmm. And then that slowly shifted throughout, you know, that would ebb and flow over the next three years. Um, and it also involved doing a, a master's degree um, in biomedical sciences. Uh, and so that's my path to the residency and how I kind of ended up becoming a theriogenologist, which I would not consider it to be a typical path at all. You know, it's not like I started vet school and said, I want to be a reproductive specialist. And uh, and it was on this direct path. It was a little bit more circuitous. And I really credit the people that I got to work with who put their names on the line, um, looked out for me, gave me the exposure and the experience to be able to um, get to where I am now. That is fascinating. I love this story. And, you know, I think that, again, this is really where our listeners are enamored, you know, with this spirit of Haggard, because your story is just so representative of, you know, just pursuing your passion and, you know, knocking on doors. And sometimes they are closed and other times another door opens that you weren't expecting. And then certainly for me, what I love the most about it is, is that you credit your people, right? So I always say, okay, these are the heroes along the way. These are my heroes in my journey that have opened doors for me and and allowed me to experience and and get where I am today. So, I mean, that's fantastic. Yes, no, absolutely. And I would not be here without those people. I won't even venture to start to name them because I'm sure I'd forget someone. I feel like I'm giving yeah. like an Academy Award speech or something. And I'm <laughs> right. worried I'm not going to thank the right people, but you know who you are. And um, yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't be here without you. That is, that's incredible. I love this. Let's pause for just a minute to hear from our friends at Bymeta, our Spirit of Haggard podcast sponsor. Bymeta might just be the largest animal health company you have never heard of until now. Bymeda Animal Health's equine products have been trusted by veterinarians and horse owners since the 1960s where our Irish roots began. Bymeda is one of the largest producers of dewormers for horses like Equimax, Bimectin, Duramectin, and Exodus. World-renowned equine athletes rely on polyglycan, a patented formula designed to replace lost or damaged synovial fluid, and Confidence X 1% pheromone gel that reduces and prevents equine stress, to name a few of our branded products. We encourage you to consult with your equine veterinarian before using any equine products for your horse. Also, please visit buymedaus.com to learn more about our full product offerings and where you can buy them. So as a theriogenologist, you have mentioned words, therio, repro. So let's just define that. You know, our student audience, especially that are, you know, just showing an interest in equine veterinary medicine or veterinary medicine in general. So let's, let's just define some things in this particular specialty and what that means. Yeah, absolutely. So theriogenology is a uh, a recently generated term, um, and it's ethereo it, meaning beast and genealogy to create or come into being. So the creation of beasts or creation of animals. So animal reproduction is essentially what theory genealogy is. So it's a, a, a branch of veterinary, of veterinary medicine dealing with particularly reproduction. 
And um, uh, a theriogenologist is someone who's board certified in the American College of Theriogenologists. So that's uh, a similar board certification program to becoming a board certified surgeon or a board certified cardiologist or a neurologist or what have you, where you complete um, necessary training, um, either in a residency program or in a supervised practice program, and then um, complete some publication requirements and then also um, a, pass a, a board exam that's given by the college. And then once you pass those requirements, then you're a, a diplomat of the American College of Theriogenologists. There are um, a couple of other international colleges that um, deal with veterinary reproduction, but I'll just focus on the American college since we're here in the States because I, I don't think we really have time. But I just, if, if any international people are listening and offended that I have neglected <laughs> to mention that it is not just the ACT, I fully acknowledge it's not just the ACT, but when we speak about um, you know, a theorygenologist here, that's generally what we're referring to. Some, so someone who's undergone specialty training in this branch of veterinary medicine dealing with reproduction. Okay, perfect. I say come visit. Yes. yes. So, so to our <laughs> listeners, you know, we remind you, A, if you haven't gone back and listened to our previous episodes, do that. But our second piece of advice is come visit. Yes, you know, come absolutely. to Central Kentucky, come take a tour at Haggard. And, you know, we will make sure that you get the experience and, and answer any questions that you might have. Yes. So let's talk about this Therio thing day-to-day and what it looks like. So what are your responsibilities and what are you doing with your time? Yep. First first and foremost, getting the mares pregnant and then keeping them pregnant and keeping the pregnancy healthy enough to produce an athlete. So you mentioned kind of trying to describe the difference between what I do as a specialist and what general practitioners do on a larger scale. And there's so many horses in central Kentucky. They're simply like, we need every single person (laughs) that's here to get, get, get this all done in a timely fashion. It's a very concentrated amount of time. And, um, the, the general practitioner repro vets in central Kentucky are, you, you would be hard pressed to find better skilled reproductive practitioners than in central Kentucky because we just see so much Mm -hmm. here. Um, And the, the numbers that you see and the, um, the just familiarity with what's normal and then being able to instantly pick out, Hey, this isn't right. Um, You know, some, this isn't right. I don't know exactly what's wrong, but um, let's call in a specialist to spend a bit more time on this mare um, and try to get to the bottom of what's going on. It's not like I do anything better or differently from a general practitioner. We just look at mares in a different way. And uh, because of the, oftentimes, because of the history she comes with, because of her general practitioner workup and, um, and or, you know, we've bred this mare a couple times, everything looks normal, and yet she's still not in full. Those are the ones that then come to a specialist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, it, it really comes down to a lot of being able to spend a lot more individual time on that mare um, to be able to get to the bottom of what her story is. Um, and there's no one recipe that works right, works well for every mare. Yeah. Um, everyone is her own little special snowflake of what she has going on. And every pregnancy is a puzzle where you have to kind of put together um, anatomy, physiology, uh, microbiology, everything. It's it's having to 
think about a lot of things at once and try to put them together into what that animal needs for that pregnancy to be successful. Um, and we talk a lot about the mare side. Also, of course, the stallion side is hugely important. So yes. keeping those stallions in tip-top shape and fertility, because again, they have a very concentrated job where they're asked to do a lot in a very short amount of time. And so keeping um, the stallions up and running is, is a crucial component of what we do. And that's on the thoroughbred side. And then on the um, non-thoroughbred side, where we're able to utilize um, different techniques and technologies um, uh, other than the live cover and being, you know, having to carry your own full for the jockey club regulations. So that's a lot of what the um, specialty service does in addition to these tough kind of quote unquote problem mares mm-hmm. um, are also the uh, non-thoroughbred caseload. So that would be um, your sport horses, your saddlebreds, quarter horses, Arabians, um, where we're, uh, you know, freezing semen, doing artificial insemination, flushing embryos, aspirating oocytes, um, and doing uh, embryo transfers and um, that whole different, you know, sister realm of deriogenology. So that's the other component of what we do at the service is offer those specialized services beyond um, the the live cover thoroughbred, which of course are a huge proportion of what goes on in central Kentucky, but right. the sport horse and you know non-thoroughbreds are also starting to expand you know rapidly in the last at least at least 10 years, if not more. So it's been a, a, yeah. a, a, a slow growing crescendo of um, how the in, how the demographics of the horse population have shifted and how yeah. their repro needs have shifted. I'm glad that you bring that up too, because we do spend so much time talking about, you know, the thoroughbred industry in central Kentucky, but, you know, Kentucky is still, it remains a top five, you know, state in the country for horses. Mm-hmm. It's a huge quarter horse population. Mm-hmm. And to your point, the sport horse population, even right here in central Kentucky and across the state and, and the region is tremendous. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's important for our listeners to know that, you know, you don't just come here and work on thoroughbreds, but there there is a great deal of variety and, you know, a different caseload as well. Yeah. I think that really represents the industry here and the movement of horses as well, you know, and, yes. and, and again, we'll cover, we cover all these aspects in different podcasts, but you know, when you talk about sport horses that they have a season all their mm-hmm. own, mm-hmm. right. That looks a little different than the thoroughbred season yes. that we talk about for yes. repro. Yes. So let's take a quick break to recognize our spirit of Haggard podcast sponsor by Mita. Bimeda might be the biggest animal health company you've never heard of until now. Bimeda's products have been trusted by veterinarians and owners since the 1960s when our Irish roots began. Bimeda is one of the largest producers of dewormers like Equimax, Bimectin, and Exodus. World-renowned equine athletes also rely on polyglycan, a patented formula that replaces lost or damaged synovial fluid in Confidence X pheromone gel, which reduces and prevents equine stress. Consult your vet and visit buymediaus.com to see where to buy. Now, you mentioned, I'm going to back up just a little bit, but you talked about Dr. Karen Wolfsdorf, Dr. Christina Liu, like your team. Talk about the power of that. Yep, absolutely. So um, even before you know, the Karen Wolfsdorf, Christina Liu, um, it was a whole, and the generation that I'm familiar with kind of being in awe of like these 
just foundational pillars of reproduction would be the Walter Zents and the Steiners and the Fallons um, and McGee and that whole generation of doing what we do now, but with half the technology and 10 times the sheer skill, you know, they were masters of what they were able to do. And, you know, sometimes I'll, um, I really try not to do this myself where I am critical of, uh, you know, image quality on an ultrasound or equipment, because if you think about what, you know, Dr. Holder was able to do with an Aloka 500 and develop the fetal sexing procedure, the image quality on that machine compared to what we are spoiled with today is worlds different. And so um, what the practice was able to do with the technology at any given time is just incredible. And it's such an art and it's so easy flashing forward 40 years to what we have now and be really, really spoiled by the modalities at our disposal. And to think that they were still getting problem bears pregnant and, um, you know, fetal sexing and doing colic surgeries and doing placenta monitoring and having to do all of that uphill both ways in the snow um, is, you know, really we have to never forget that like, yes. they were incredible. So, and then more recent innovations, um, uh, you know, the McGee Fertility, Karen Wolfsdorf, Christina Liu, um, uh, we do a lot in terms of, um, I think we have a lot to offer the practice of theory just in the sheer numbers of cases that we see and being able to report on um, you know, these are the trends that we're seeing. Uh, this is how we deal with these. Here's a group of 60 mares that we have cultured before and after, um, you know, using, um, I don't want to, I don't want to, I, it's, I don't want to brag, you know, like we do a lot of cool stuff and I don't, I don't, okay. Um, so well, our listeners yeah. want to hear some of the cool stuff. <laughs> okay. Okay. Right. So, so I, I would say, uh, the cool stuff that we do, um, we see a lot of dirty mares. Um, endometritis yes. is a huge problem in, um, in re- mare reproduction. And, uh, so Christina Liu, um, has kind of extrapolated from, work that was done um, in other institutions on using mucolytics to try to break down a layer of mucus and see um, what bacteria might be hiding under that layer of mucus. And previous reports were harnessing this as a, tre- a treatment alone. And um, uh, Christina Liu took that idea and said, oh, hey, wait, what if we use this to improve how we diagnose things from the beginning to then to then be able to improve treatment? So what if we take it back a step, see what's changing in the endometrium before and after this mucolytic, and then um, use that to treat these mares more effectively? And so that was her uh, one of her more recent babies and brainchilds. And so we um, have published on um, the what a what the culture and cytology results for a mare are before and after infusing acetylcysteine. And we find we can pick up about a third more um, kind of s- silent, dirty mares where if you just do standard diagnostics, 
they won't come up dirty. And you have to take it to this next step to be like, oh, wait, actually, you've been hiding beta strep this whole time, and that's why you're not pregnant. Now let's treat the beta strep and we can move on from there. So um, that's one of our more recent um, you know, things that have come from the practice on the repro front. Um, also, one of the things that always awes me about Christina Liu is how, uh, how much time she spends keeping tabs on other species. And theory genealogy is an extremely comparative specialty. And so um, extrapolating from other species and what pregnancy pitfalls happen in other species and then how those might be applied to horses or to dogs or to cows, um, that we get gain a lot of value from that. And sometimes she'll be chatting and she'll just casually throw out like, oh, but this happens in pigs and this happens in women. I'm like, how on earth do you have time to keep (laughs) up with that? Like you put me to shame because I know you're doing three times as much and yet you still do all this. So um, another um, piece of kind of developing new diagnostics and monitoring techniques is that she's taken from cervical monitoring in pregnant women as an indicator of preterm labor and pregnancy compromise. So um, apparently human physicians will spend a lot of time monitoring a woman's cervix and use that as an indicator that there might be something going wrong with the pregnancy. And previous pregnancy monitoring in horses has classically always been looking at the uterus and placenta. And so then um, Christina Liu took that and said, okay, but what about the cervix in mares? Like we pass by it every time we're um, scanning a mare, we necessarily are going right over it. Uh, And so why don't we spend some time critically scanning it? And so um, she published on a group of mares that she monitored throughout gestation and was able to document that um, uh, abnormalities in the cervix during pregnancies do have a significant correlation with full outcome and pregnancy outcome. And so that has now become a standard part of how I look at pregnancies. And that was previously not something that I'd ever thought about or um, been taught before. And it was just her looking at hundreds of hundreds of mares season after season and saying, how can we do this better? What can we do differently? Uh, Sure, we can do what's already been published and established very well, but can we do more? Is there more we can see? Is there more we can look at? And it turns out, yes, there is. And it's the cervix. And um, it's amazing what you can see. And I, I just watching her scan pregnancies, you, I learned so much in the first little chunk of time that I was here. Um, and it's, it's amazing what you can pick up. Um, and so that would probably be another big thing that's come out fairly recently that I feel like we've we've contributed to. Um, and then Karen Wolfsdorf has published on using bucerellin to, in, uh, you know, the time pressure of the thoroughbred season is intense. You know, you really want those early covers. And that's sometimes in the face of a mare's physiology where she may not normally be cycling until March or April, but that doesn't work out very well if the shed's open in February and you want that full-born Jan- in early January. So um, she investigated using low doses of um, bucerellin, which is a, a hormone, to try to advance um, the transition period in mares, to try to get them to cycle earlier in the season. Mm-hmm. And then that's been something that I've also incorporated into some of my mares that are, um, you know, they're in uh, D1 
deep, they're, you know, they're in transition, they're building follicles, but they're just not getting over that ovulation hump. You know, like that transition period is kind of like a roller coaster where they're building follicular waves and building follicular waves and they're falling and they're falling and rising. And you have to get over that like big roller coaster of ovulation. You're like cranking up the, you know, you're here, the roller coaster. Yeah, clicking. Clink. Yeah, exactly. And then you were like, whoo, now we've ovulated. Fine, finally. Yeah. And so um, her technique of using Bucerellin has allowed us to advance that first ovulation of the season and being able to get these mares going sooner, which has been, um, you know, a game changer in the industry. Um, and I mean, that's just a few. I mean, we could talk about, again, this could be a whole podcast of just... Right? <laughs> the science of Therio. Yes. 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 I, I love that. You are in your first decade of practice. And for so many of our listeners, they are at the very beginning of this journey. And so there's a lot of unknown, there's fear, there's, oh, I'm, I'm intimidated. You talked about all these things. You were intimidated by this practice, mm-hmm. intimidated by Central Kentucky. Yeah. You know, there's a fear of, of, am I good enough? And what do I want? I don't even know really what I want to do. Yeah. All those things. So I would love for our listeners to hear from you the nuggets of advice that you might have for the student who is considering veterinary medicine, equine veterinary medicine, or the student who is nearing graduation, you know, give us a little bit of advice directly to, we are speaking to these students. Yeah. I would say seek out as many opportunities to um, be an active bystander as you can. And there is so much that can be gained by watching someone who's very well practiced at what he or she does do that on a repetitive basis. You can just how their, their muscle memory, how they move, how they, um, how their, their flow of picking things up and cleaning a mare or uh, all these things. So just you can gain so much just by looking. And then that also gets you in the room to be there if something more interesting happens other than just the routine um, and allows you to um, create those crucial connections that then can set up really important life-changing opportunities. And and again, even if you think it's going to be like a, a boring day at clinics or a boring day at this clinic you're visiting, just, just be there and be an active. Don't be on your phone. Uh, Don't have your hands in your pockets. Um, You can nearly always be sweeping a floor at a clinic or squeegeeing the floor and or emptying muck buckets in a a breeding breeding operation. So there's always something to do to be useful. And if you can't identify something, at least just be there and be watching and be observant. Um, Make those connections. Um, And if I like look back to like times five or 10 years ago when I was like, oh, like I shouldn't ask that question or I shouldn't seem like I don't know how to do that or um, that, uh, you know, I, oh, I shouldn't, I, I should already know this. So I'm not going to expose that I don't know it. And I wish I could turn back and like be like, actually, no, I don't need to know this now. I'm a fourth year vet student. I don't need to know this. I'm allowed to ask this. <laughs> like, you think you should know more than you are, you really should, you know, you, there, you don't have to know everything fourth year of vet school. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, or if you're, if you're scared to try something new because you don't want to fail or look um, like you do, like I think back to 
like third year palpation labs and you it's kind of like the emperor's new clothes because everybody's just inside this you're you're palpating a cow you know and nobody can really tell if you can feel the ovary or not and you kind of get this peer yes. pressure of like oh my gosh everybody else is like i remember this, this there was a, a i had a classmate who was like well, yeah, this this cow has you know two CLs and and some ten millimeter follicles, and her cervix feels like this. And I'm like, I don't feel any of that, but I'm just gonna say like, yeah, I feel an ovary. Yeah, I do yes. because I feel like I have to say that. But it's okay to not feel ovaries the first time, even the first fifty times you palpate something. It's okay um, if you haven't felt one by the first hundred times you've palpated something. Speak up and say, I don't actually feel an ovary because there's probably a lot we can do to help you. But um, don't feel pressured to, to like say that you understand something or that you feel comfortable with something just because you feel like you should. Like it's okay to not excel at that the very first time you do it, and um, you have there's so much time, so much time to learn. And um, and and uh, yeah, I guess that's, that's all I would say. It wasn't very eloquent, but I love it. I just I want to sit over here and cheer, right, and clap for that advice, right? It's okay when we don't know. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and it is the practice of veterinary medicine. Right. Right. So as we wap up, I always love to ask a question about. You might have to think about this, but. I want to know if you have a standout best day, best memory of being a veterinarian. Oh yeah, that, that's easy. Okay, because right? because that's the that's the day I think about <laughs> when I'm having a bad day. Okay, <laughs> when everything's going wrong and the mares aren't pregnant and everybody you're late to every call and you feel like a failure. This is the day I think about. Um, so I've mentioned a couple of times how comparative theorio is, and we focus so much on the equine portion of what what I do at Haggards that I haven't really talked about the canine opportunity. That when I started, knowing my background with the my residency exposure, the practice went out of their way to say, "Hey, what can we do to support you if you want to continue doing some canine reproduction?" And I was like, "Oh my gosh, I'd love that!" So here's what I here's what we need. We need a little space to do some, you know, a little like a small, you know, a, a small scale, small animal clinic with, you know, um, an exam room. And this is the type of table I need. This is the type of scope I need. The lab needs to be open to doing seven day a week progesterone testing. Um, and they said, yeah, no problem. We can set all that up. And so um, they've allowed me to uh, have um, a, a small, you know, I don't, I don't really have the time to do large, I couldn't do dog repro all day because there would there aren't enough hours in the day, but um, we do a small number of um, dog breeding cycles a year. And, and those are often um, word of mouth clients um, from other clients that I've uh, bred their dogs and had success. And then they tell their friends and then they bring, you know, important pregnancies for us. And that's, it's such a privilege to be trusted with that um, because these are often breedings that have been planned for years with sometimes semen that's been frozen for decades. And, wow. and that's, it's, I, I think reproduction, it, it really is a privilege because a lot of people can do repro. And when somebody comes to you and says, no, we want you to do the repro because we trust you with this, you know, this egg and this sperm will die if they don't become a pregnancy. And, and it, it, that, that's, 
the best word I can think of for it. It's, it's a privilege. Um, so anyway, so I also do a little bit of canine repro still, which, which I love. And I love my clients and I love the dogs I get to work with. But there was a day last season um, and it was a, a jam-packed day. And uh, we started really early in the morning. We checked frozen mares. We flushed embryos. We went out on farm calls. We came back. We did a, a transcervical insemination on a bitch. We uh, went back out and did farm calls. We did a stallion in the field. We froze a stallion. And then at the end of the day, we came back and did a transvaginal oocyte aspiration. So in a single day, it was the full spectrum of kind of what I do as a, a specialist. Um, we got to do some dogs. We got to do some stallions. We got to do some assisted repro with oocytes. We did embryos. Um, and it, it was really just, it was like the best comparative theory of genealogy day. But really the best thing about it was that there were so many moving parts that the techs at the clinic setting everything up for each of these various procedures, everybody was on their A game and everything was perfect and set up. And um, it was just, we as a team had these, this, this, just, we had our goals outlined and it was like, okay, at this time, this is ready. At this time, this is ready. And ever, it was ever, it was like a, it was like one of those machine cogs that you see. And like, there's, there's like the big wheel and the little wheels, and there's maybe a little belt somewhere and everything is just humming along. And it went so perfectly. And um, it was a great day. And that was, that was the day. And we did, we just did a lot of different things and everybody was on the same page and we got it done. And it was harmonious and wonderful and the perfect comparative theory of day. I love it. harmonious and wonderful. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that there are so many contributing factors to that. You mentioned the technicians. Again, I always love to give a shout out to our technicians and our assistants and everyone who is working to make it all happen. Yeah. Why Haggard is that we ha- at this practice, there are the best of everybody in their fields. Um, and that is not just the clinicians. Like certainly we have um, the you know medicine, surgery, radiology, all of these different fields have their standout superstar, big star clinician names that everybody recognizes and comes to. But behind the scenes of that, we have the laboratory, we have the pharmacy, we have the upstairs who keeps all of our records in order and talks to clients and and make sure that we you know bring in enough dollars to keep the lights on. And it is the best of all those things. And so I know that when I drop a lab sample off at the lab, it is being attended to with the same amount of urgency and importance that I am approaching that mare with. Mm -hmm. And that team is doing everything they can to get me the best diagnostic results that I need to make decisions about that case to have a good outcome. I know that if I call the pharmacy and I need a compound made of a drug that probably isn't available to many. Sometimes I'll have friends in other parts of practice and they'll say, hey, like, what do you use for this? And I'm like, well, I use this from our pharmacy, but like, I don't know how you can get it. Like, I don't know if they can, they can legally ship to your state. And like, I don't know what I would do in my practice without this. So I don't know how to help you maybe try this. Um, So we have all of these resources that everybody is trying to get to this same end goal. Um, And then outside the practice being in this area, we work with amazing horse people where I know that when they're holding that horse, that I'm safe standing right behind it, which violates 
the cardinal rule of working around <laughs> horses is you don't stand behind them. And all day long, I stand behind horses and I palpate them. And I can only do that because I'm working with such good people. And um, if we're trying to make a judgment call on when do we send this mare? Does she go today? Does she go tomorrow? Do we try to push her an extra day? I know that I can trust the subtleties of their teasing technique. And they, we work together as a team to be able to say, hey, you know, Doc, I know she has a large follicle. I know it's starting to soften, but her tease, I think she can, I think she can go an extra day. Let's do this. And we make that decision together. And we run the risk of missing that mare. But if we can get that, if we can eke out that extra day of edema, that can improve our chances of pregnancy. And we make that decision together. And we know that if the next day we come back and we've missed that mare, we share that heartache together, yes. you know, because we made that decision together. If it had worked out, we may have been better set up to get a little black dot in 14 days. But I also know that they're going to share that agony with me if I come back the next morning and we've missed it. Um, so it is, it is, I know everybody says, oh yeah, it's a team. Oh, yeah, It is a team. Everybody is working for these same things. And yes, it's amazing doctors, but it is also amazing people behind those doctors that let us do what we do. And um, I just, I can't stress that enough, you know, like it, it, yes, it is the doctor names and we've met, we've thrown out a lot of names during this. And I know in the other podcasts we do too, but like shout out to the whole Haggard and really the central Kentucky team, you know, that keep this whole machine, this crazy machine going. Yes. Oh my gosh. I, I just, there's nothing else to say. I mean, Dr. Von Dolan, your passion is palpable. <laughs> I, I love, I love the double like entendre. The yeah, I love okay. it. I love it. I love palpating things. Yes. Uh, your passion is just contagious. And I think that today we have truly shared what it means to have the spirit of Haggard. And, you know, like that's, that's our podcast is yes, we want to educate and we want to talk about theriogenology and we want folks to know all that goes on here and the innovation and the technology and, and those that standard of excellence. But truly at the end of the day, it is, it is your spirit and your ability to share that passion and credit across this team and this, this family. Um, that is what our listeners are really responding to. So for that, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. And yeah, come visit. Um, and uh, I can't promise that I'll be any more eloquent, but I will promise to, um, sh- you know, we'll see a lot of mares. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I, I share, I have to share with our listeners, right? Because I know you'll go dashing out of here as you pull your coveralls back up. Because when we started this an hour or so ago, she came dashing in with her coveralls up and apologizing for being late and trying to do too much work before our podcast. So I know you're busy. We appreciate all your time and all the passion and energy that you have shared with us today. Nope. My, my pleasure. So I am your host, Jody Lynch Findlay. Cheers to the spirit of Haggard. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Spirit of Haggard podcast today, sponsored by Bymeda. I'm your host, Jody Lynch Findlay, speaker and podcaster. You can connect with me at jodyspeakslife.com.